Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. I've been uh, very excited leading up to this series, uh, be preparing in my spirit, be preparing in the word, because I think uh, this is going to be pretty significant. So without any further ado, let's go back to the 1950s for a minute. Uh, in the 1950s, Solomon Ash gathered group of, uh, groups and groups of students for a test. He wanted to check people's visual perception, so he got them to sit in a room and look at lines like these. Then they had to give an answer. Which line matched the individual one, A, B, or C? Now, if you have a look at it, it's actually not a particularly challenging test, right? Less than 1% of people got this wrong. And uh, that happened the first two rounds of testing with this group of young men, young students that were gathered together in a room. For the first two rounds, everyone got exactly the same answer. And the third round, things began to get interesting. Because unbeknownst to the participants, this was actually not a visual perception test at all, but a behavioural psychology test. And most of the people in the room were not participants, they were actors, and they were being told exactly which answer to give. So for the first two rounds, they were told to give the correct answer. They were told exactly which answer is correct. But the remaining 15 trials that came, 11 of those 15, they deliberately gave wrong answers. And the one participant in the room who was not an actor was always last. So what would happen is everybody else would look at those three lines and go, the answer is A. And the last person would have a conundrum. Do they look at it and go, well, the answer is clearly not A, it is clearly C. Do they go against the flow of everyone else or not? Now, when they did this test individually, and people just did it in their rooms, in in a room by themselves individually, there was a less than 1% error rate. That is to say, almost nobody got it wrong. When they did it in a group, 37% of people chose the incorrect answer. Now, here's the thing. It's not about that 37% chose the wrong answer. The key is that 37% chose the wrong answer and they knew it was the wrong answer. As they gave the answer, they were well aware that they were giving the wrong answer, but they gave it anyway. And when quizzed afterwards, the participants indicated that their two main reasons for deliberately choosing wrong were number one, to fit in, and number two, the belief that the other people in the test were smarter than they were. And the behavioural psychologist later suggested a third, they thought, to avoid conflict was probably part of this as well. Why are we talking about this? Because, like the participants in this test, we live in a culture of lies. Lies that are pervasive and often enticing and comforting and ultimately destructive. Lies that tell us more about what we wish to be true than what is actually true. Lies that we consume and process, and more importantly, lies that we begin to live out, and lies that threaten who we are as children of God, and our understanding of the character of God and His purposes for our lives. Welcome to Live No Lies. Now, seeing as it's 2022, I think I'd better begin with a trigger warning. Uh, This is going to be the sort of series that will offend and upset some people. 
Uh, possibly everyone by the time the series is over with. I'm not sure. Come back to me in six weeks' time. But just hear me that as we go through this, the intent is not to come at it to offend anybody. Anybody can offend. The intent is never to offend. The intent is with love to carefully point people back towards the person of Jesus. So I just want to assure you that if anything does come across as offensive, that is never the intent. The intent is to draw people back to Jesus. And if you're here and you would call yourself a Christian, then my challenge to you is this have an open pair of hands and an open heart and be ready to be convicted. Be open to what God wants to do among you. Allow yourself to be challenged. And if you're here and you would not yet call yourself a Christian, first of all, welcome. So great to have you. Uh, Every week there are atheists and skeptics in the room, so you're in good company. And I just want to say a huge welcome to you. And I want to challenge you something slightly different. Why don't you just lay aside skepticism for a while? I'm not telling you to throw it away because you're not going to do that. But what I'm encouraging you to do is put it aside for the next few weeks, the next six weeks, and consider that just maybe, maybe what we're talking about is possible. Maybe there is a God, and maybe there is a devil, and maybe there are fleshly desires that rise up within us, and maybe there is a world around us that is in fact not just apathetic, but has a particular kind of forming that it is going to do to us. Maybe, just maybe, this is what is real. I'm not trying to get you to drink the Kool-Aid here. I'm actually trying to get you to open your mind. So what I'm inviting you to do is for the next six weeks, have an open mind about these topics, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we're really going to do a deep dive over the next six weeks into those, two weeks each. So the final thing I want to challenge everyone here with is, is to commit to being here every Sunday. Now, I feel like in a different generation, this was not a very difficult thing to challenge people with, but for whatever reason, COVID, winter, I don't know. 2022, it seems like a bigger challenge to make towards people. But I really want to put this out here. I really want to challenge people, not just encourage, but go, be here every week. There is something about the body of Christ, and I'm going to talk about this more next week, that when you get one in three, one in four, you just do not receive and participate in the way it was intended to be. That's my challenge. Six weeks. You got six weeks for this series. And at the end of it, if nothing has happened in your life, nothing's happened in your heart, God's never spoken, I'm talking total rubbish, that's fine. You can walk out. I don't mind. But why don't you give me six weeks? Sound like a deal? Deal. deal. All the people that come every week say deal anyway. Great. <laughs> Let me get right into the first trigger point. This series is important because identifying lies is one of the best ways to interrogate reality, interrogate the truth. One of the things you get taught in change management is that you need to interrogate reality. And as we know in our lives, there's the truth and the truth. You know, there are two different kinds of truths. And in a religious tradition that says the truth will set you free and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, having a sense of what truth is is very important. Now, I meant to say this before. I would encourage you to take notes during this series. I'm going to cover a lot of ground really quickly. And if you've got a few things, if there's even a few little things that come up that might be interesting, that might be worth discussing in life groups, jot them down. Notes apps are amazing. Let's talk about the truth and the truth. Because in some of our contemporary political leaders, read probably all contemporary political leaders, truth is a little relative. It means different things. Over in the UK... Premier, uh, Premier, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, technically still Prime Minister, was forced to resign after some of his key leaders quit due to a lack of integrity in the office. I don't have time to list all the things that they claimed was the lack of integrity. Now, this is probably fair, considering he was the first Prime Minister to commit a criminal offence in office and then lie about it to the media. He would not have been the first Prime Minister to lie about it to the media. But some think he might actually try to still stay and hold on to power even after he resigned. So possibly the resignation itself is a lie. 
Closer to home, our Premier, Peter Malinowskis, won a recent election, mostly on the large promise that he was going to fix ramping. Within 48 hours before the voting started to happen, he came out and said, we cannot fix ramping. It's like, great, great. Now, I'm not trying to compare Peter Malinowskis to Boris Johnson. That would be very, very unfair. What I'm trying to say is this is not about left and right. This is not about politics. This is about lies that begin to get interwoven into the very fabric of our culture. These are obvious ones. There are thousands of more subtle ones. This is about the cause of much of our personal anxiety. It's about the tension, the war you feel at within yourself. There is much in your life that is causing you stress. And in, in, us, in ourselves, we see that this is not what life should be like. We constantly look and go, shouldn't life be more like blank? Everyone has asked this question at some point in their lives. Why is life like this? And part of the reason is we live in a world of fabrications. We live in a world of lies. And we want to go about bridging that gap. Living the truth, friends, is soul healing work. My friend, Pastor Dale Stevenson, likes to say it this way. The truth is your friend when you know you're loved. And that's what we get in Jesus. So what is live no lies? The object of today give you a bit of an overview of what Live No Lies is, then get into the first half of the first topic, and then we'll do the second half next week. So what is Live No Lies? Live No Lies is a statement adapted from something written by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Anyone heard of Solzhenitsyn before? A handful of people. Yes, the philosophy types, I love it. He's, he was a Russian Orthodox Christian, a political activist. Solzhenitsyn was an outspoken critic of communism. He was thrown in a Russian gulag for nine years and exiled for another three. So if you're like, ah, oh, it's been a bad decade, I present to you Solzhenitsyn. The day he was arrested, he published a piece of writing called Live Not By Lies, where he outlined his rules for responsible conduct under the corrupt socialist regime. And all of them point to one underlying idea. No lies can be permitted. As soon as you lie, you compromise the truth. As soon as you compromise truth, you compromise the world as it should be. And so Solzhenitsyn knew what it meant to suffer for truth. Now, I say this, and you're like, oh, his manifesto was don't lie. Brilliant, groundbreaking, right? Yeah, of course, who likes liars? But in our time, everyone's a liar. You are a liar, I'm a liar. We do it all the time. Clickbait headlines, you know, you never believe what this celebrity, like, yes, we will. You click on it, they've walked their dog. <laughs> Filters and poses on social media. Politicians choosing fast votes over long-term interest. Philosophers arguing over whether truth is relative. You know, that's true for you, but not true for me. Or perhaps more recently, I love that for you, you know. Normal, everyday Aussies fudging deductions on tax returns and taking sickies to go to the cricket and all of us laughing it off as if that's fine. Steal, what's the problem? It's become culturally normative. And this is what we need to look at. In 2016, the word post-truth was the Oxford Dictionary word of the year. This is the realm we are in now. No prizes for guessing who was elected that same year. And in AD 33, the Roman governor of Judea said to a Jewish rabbi, what is truth? This is the world we live in. And so live no lies is a commitment for Christians to live by the truth. What do I mean by that? Specifically, I mean living for Jesus in a way that repels the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Christian thinkers throughout history have used these categories prominently in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, the original. It reads this, from all the deceits of the world, the flesh, and the devil, good Lord, deliver us. Similarly, the rite of baptism in the Anglican church at the time in the 1400s required renunciations of the devil, the world, and the flesh. Imagine coming to get baptized, and I said to you, if you want to get baptized, you've got to publicly renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. Invite your friends. It's going to be a great time. You know. 
But that's what it was like at the time. This is not a new idea, but it's an idea we bury in Western Christianity because it deals with topics that we're not very comfortable with. They're not dinner table topics for us. You know, don't talk about politics or religion, the two great rules of the Aussie dinner table. We might consider critiquing the flesh, maybe, recognizing that nobody's perfect, even if we believe that our opinion is just a little bit more perfect. But the world is an organism that we're shaped by. The devil as an active spiritual power, forget about it. But there's something here if we look more closely. Now, this book, Live No Lies, is excellent. It is, it is actually, this is not just me shilling a book. This is destined to become a Christian classic, like mere Christianity for our times. It is a different kind of book. I want to encourage you to get it. Kurong is on Weymouth Street, 63 copies in there as of yesterday. I didn't check today, and I told you the truth about yesterday because this is a series about not lying. 63 copies. I want to encourage you, pick up a copy. It is worth having on your shelf. And John Mark Homer's basic premise is that the world, the flesh, and the devil can be looked at in this way. Three things. The devil brings deceptive ideas that play to the flesh's disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. I'm going to read that through one more time because this is the overarching premise for the whole series. The devil brings deceptive ideas that play to the flesh's disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. There is a lot to unpack, which is why it's a six-week series, but that's the overarching premise. Here is the beauty in this. Much of the tension that you feel in your life, much of the anxiety you experience, much of your personal wrestle with sin, with God, and with doubt is not entirely your doing. Let me just give you that as a gift. Some of what you wrestle with is you've just been listening to the wrong narratives. You've just been imbibing and believing the wrong story. There is another story Jesus is offering for us to take up and live out. Instead of the story of Jesus, we've internalized the story of this world. So that's where we begin. Yes, that was the introduction. Today is the world part one. So what do we mean when we say the world? Well, in the Bible, the primary word used for the world is the word cosmos. Everybody say cosmos. The Greek word cosmos is where we get the English word cosmos. And in the Greek, in the Bible, it is used in multiple different ways. It has more than one meaning. Uh, so think about how bear can be used to mean an animal or it can be used to carry something or to endure something, right? It has multiple different meanings. Cosmos is the same. Here's the first meaning. It has at least three. Here's the first one. The universe or the world as a physical thing. The second is as humanity. It's all right. Stay there for just for a second on that first one. The second is as humanity, and the third is as an anti-God system. We'll land there, but let's go to that first one just quickly. So the universe or the world is a physical thing. Think of Romans 1.20 up on the screen behind you, right? Where it says, for his invisible attributes have been clearly seen since the creation of the world. Right there, Paul is talking about the physical world, tangible, the world. The second one, though, is humanity. Think of the classic John 3.16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Same word, right? But instead of saying, you know, physical things, God has given his son for the whole world. But when we say whoever, that's not like this table or the trees. It is about human beings. So that's humanity. The third one, though, is where we really need to land. When we're talking about the world, we are talking about an anti-God system effectively a counter-movement against God. So let's have a look at Romans 12 too, for example. Do not be conformed to this world, 
Now, does Paul mean humanity? No, of course not. You're a human being. You're going to be a human. Does he mean, you know, standing on the earth? No, of course not. You're, you're kind of stuck here unless space travel gets better and better, you know, really quickly. Do not be conformed to this world, this system, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, we're going to come back to that. But the description of the world is effectively a counter-movement against the will of God. It is a systemic pattern of rebellion ingrained into our environment. John Mark Comer puts it this way, which I think is a helpful definition. A system, the world is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. One more time so it can sink in. The world is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. To explain this a little more clearly, let me dig into culture for a second. Because culture is not a bad way to sum up the idea of the world. I know I'm moving fast, but if I don't, you're going to be here till like Wednesday, right? <laughs> now, some of you have heard me tell this story before, but two fish swimming through the ocean side by side. Suddenly, an, an older fish comes towards them, and as he passes them, he says, Morning, boys, how's the water today? And the fish continues swimming, and after a while, one of the young fish turns to the other and says, What's water? Culture's like that. We don't necessarily notice it. It is around us at all times. It permeates us, but we don't necessarily know how it permeates us until something comes up to make us notice. Now, in and of itself, that's no problem. We just understand that culture exists and that we have to be aware of it, and that helps us interpret trends and movements, and we pay attention and move on. Let me add another idea to this, though, and that's the idea of frogs in boiling water. Now, you'd all be familiar with this idea that you put a frog in a pot of water that's the same temperature as the frog's, uh, the frog's body, and you turn up the heat, and slowly the frog begins to boil. Now, that's actually a myth, by the way. Sorry to burst your bubble, but obviously I'm not going to lie about it. Um, but it is true for humans. It is true for humans, not about putting you in boiling water. Have not done that test. <laughs> Online church, haven't tried to boil anyone alive yet. See how the attendance is for the next six weeks. No, 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 I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But what we do do as human beings is we have a short-term memory problem. So I'll give you an example. Climate change scientists are, are quite concerned about how to keep a level of urgency for people to consider the climate an issue. Here's why. We basically have about a five-year window of memory of what the weather has been like. So whether, whether you think climate change is happening or not, I do, I do not care. That's not what I'm trying to argue. What I'm trying to argue is your last five years of weather memory is all you have ever known of weather memory. And, you, and five years from now, that will be all you have known. And someone will say, geez, do you think it's hotter, colder, insert adjective here? And you go, nah, I feel like it's been like this for the last while. And you'll be right, probably, but you can't go back further than five years immediately. And so there's a fear that they, won't be, they can't continue to have a sense of, of urgency about the need. That's what human beings are like. We remember what we experience, and what we experience is largely how we determine reality. So our experiences determine what is real, not what we're told, or is it? So the great danger in culture, friends, is that it forms you, 100%. You are being formed, I, are being form I, 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 I am being formed. Not grammatically, apparently, but I am being formed. 
The question is, do we know what is forming us? The question is not, are you being formed? The question is, what is forming you and do you know? There's an emerging field of research called social contagion theory, which is particularly pertinent in this moment in time. It's the idea that behaviors, good or bad, spread through networks of family and friends and neighborhoods and cities in a very similar way to a virus. Now think of a, like a yawn. When you yawn, what happens? Other people begin to yawn or you fake it and then you begin to actually yawn. Or how smiling makes others smile. You walk into a room, you smile, people begin to smile back at you. Behaviors spread through a society quickly, they're spreading groups. We see that, that's not a surprise. But what we don't often think about is how toxic behaviors spread as well. Gossip and alcoholism and smoking and drug use and sexual ethics. Behaviors spread through a society quickly. You see it in your friendship groups. They like the same sort of things you do. One person comes in with something they really like and it begins to spread within a friendship group. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're all into this now. Most of the time, that's usually pretty harmless. But what if it isn't? This is why tobacco companies used to pay Hollywood stars to smoke all the time in movies because they knew if they could get the celebrities to smoke, everyone would start smoking. It's been happening since the dawn of time. So here's, here's my favorite example in real life. Um, when we started internships, Alicia, the amazing Alicia Young, was one of our first interns. And when she started interning with us, she did not drink coffee. No, didn't, didn't touch caffeine. Uh, I, as you may know, do drink coffee. Uh, fairly pro coffee as a general rule. And so after a couple of months, she was like, oh, I reckon maybe I'll try a mocha. It's been a long time. Oh, I don't know. I haven't tried it. So she tried a mocha, kind of lied, just stuck on mochas for a bit. Then she went to sort of really light coffees, but with no chocolate and a bit of sugar. And then the sugar came off and then it's a double. And now she's just slamming back double shot flat whites like it's nobody business, <laughs> hands shaking as she tries to take photographs of penguins at the zoo, you know. Like <laughs> this, this is what it looks like in real life. Now that's, that's a fairly low grade level of risk, right? She's fine. I assume I haven't checked in with her lately, actually. You're fine? She's fine. She says she's fine. But this is what happens. We have group behaviors and group dynamics, and we begin to conform to the group dynamic. See, what happens when that theory enters a digital age and a globally networked society? Let me tell you. In the words of Renee DiResta, who's a technical research manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory, she says it this way, if you make it trend, you make it true. That's what happens when social contagion theory and a lack of awareness about the culture forming us enters a globalized digital society. If you can make it trend, you make it true, full stop. It becomes irrelevant whether something is fact or not, and that is why we live in an era of post-truth. You're all thinking, I'm so glad I came to church today. Here's where we need to start turning it and go, where is the Lord in this? The key is he's probably not. There's no neutral ground in the world. Every inch of it is contested space. This is not about left, right, or if you're a centrist, God bless you, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's about the lordship of Jesus Christ, the true king of the world. We are building the kingdom of God or we are building the kingdom of the culture of this world. That's it. That's it. Those are our options. And it was Jesus who told us that we cannot follow two masters. So which are you following? Are we being formed by Jesus or are we being formed by the patterns of this world? So what does Jesus say about the world? Jesus came to die for cosmos, the people. But what does he say about cosmos, the culture? Well, earlier I pointed out that Jesus calls himself the truth in John chapter 8. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says to them, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Okay, what is the truth setting us free from? And he goes on to tell his disciples, sin, sin. Everybody loves that word. Very popular. 
It's the acts of rebellion against God that have corrupted hearts and cultures for generations. Racism, sexism, war, pornification of our culture, murder. Time and time again, we turn to sin and rebel against God. This is not surprising. What is surprising is we forget that when we sin, we are thinking we are doing ourselves a favor. Or as Coma would say, we are redefining good and evil for our own purposes. We're saying, I will pursue sin until it is a good And when it gets normalized in society, then sin is no longer evil, but it is good. But sin has a price. Sin causes us death. The wages of sin are death, Romans 3. This isn't a message on hell. This is a comment on what sin does to your soul. See, sin is like a callus to your spirit. When we are consciously, and particularly consciously, pursuing a way that is against God, it eats away at us until we are thoroughly anti-God. Now, not even so much in words, as in our posture, as in our spirit. I know some very anti-God people who have sat in church all their lives because they've never wanted to have soft hearts and open hands to receive the word of God. They've come in sure of who they are and sure of their opinion of God and have never wanted to change. And so they remained exactly the same. But that is not who we've been called to be. See, the world, when your desires for what you perceive, this is good, I had to say it. When your desires for what you perceive you need, is greater than your desire for the wisdom of God in your life, that's when you get the world. The world, friends, is just sin gone viral. That's all. It's what happens when sin gets normalized and then culture gets corrupted by being formed into that image, from that normalization. What does that look like in modern secular society? Well, the leading atheist thinker, Yuval Noah Harari, puts it this way. In earlier times, it was God who could define goodness, righteousness, and beauty. Today, those answers lie within us. Okay, but there's a piece of us that quite enjoys the comfort of a cliche like that. Unfortunately, one person's righteousness is another person's genocide. And I know this is right. I'm doing what's right at the expense of another race of human beings. This is how we get to philosophies like Peter Singer's, who's at Princeton and who believes animals and humans are the same and that we should be able to euthanize disabled babies after birth if we feel like it. He genuinely believes this. Why not? If you have a philosophy that animals and humans are the same, and that life is something to be given or taken at a moment's notice, why not? At least he's true to his ethics, even if I don't agree with them. Because goodness is what makes us feel good, right? Theo Hobson, in his book, Reinventing Liberal Christianity, wrote this idiom to sum up the three marks of modern moral revolution. Now, hear this. What was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned. And those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. It's just quicker to call it cancel culture. He's saying this, by the way, to affirm liberal Christianity, just in case you wondered why I don't identify as a liberal Christian. And I don't exaggerate when I say this is literally how Adolf Hitler corrupted the German church. Like, literally the pattern he used. Celebrate what should be condemned, condemn what should be celebrated, and then condemn the people who refuse to celebrate the new movement. I do not say these things just to shock you. I say to make an important point, and that is sin is at war with your soul. And when it takes enough ground, we get the culture of the world. And the irony is, not only do we get a culture shaped by sin, we think we've walked into freedom. We think we've discovered something. Freedom to embrace anxiety and addiction and brokenness and an anti-gospel that is the bad news of this world. That is what we step into. So what do we do about it? And now I swear I turn to some positive thinking. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, offers some powerful advice that I read earlier. 
Having sung God's praises to the Roman church and showed them how blessed they are to be called a part of God's family, he goes on to describe how best to live in view of God's mercies towards us, his kindness, his goodness, Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, living temples to God. That is, your body matters, your life matters, and every breath you have is both a gift from God and an opportunity for God. In 1 Corinthians 6, he puts it even more plainly. He says, you are not your own. But here he goes on to the verse I read earlier. He says, do not be conformed to this cosmos, this world, this age, but be transformed. Okay, how? How? Through the renewal of your mind. Think for yourself, but with the mind of Christ. I think the irony is sometimes Christians can get a bad name because it appears like we're not thinking for ourselves and go, just God, you, you do it and we'll just, we'll just obey blindly. But actually Paul is saying, no, 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 think for yourself. Once you have begun to enter into this relationship with Jesus, once you begin to trust in him as Lord, if you're not there yet, okay, you're obviously in a different place, a different process. But if you're there, you discern that God is good and he has expressed that most clearly through Jesus and what Jesus has done on your behalf and then use the mind of Christ to discern what is good and what is evil. Oh, so I don't just follow blindly my church? No, you've got to discern it. This is why, friends, you need to read your own Bible. You need to be in the Word the same way you need to be in church. They are different purposes. But the Word is so important because you, you need to discover what this says. You need to discover what Jesus says. You can't take my word for it. Why? Because you can only trust me so far. Look at me. Like, like, come on. I don't look like a professional. Let's be real. You need to work this out for yourself. That is a gift to you. People fought and died for the right for you to read this for yourself. And that is one of God's great gifts to you, one of the Reformation's great gifts to you. Paul doesn't say blindly obey him. He says, renew your minds regularly. See, it's renewal, not renewed. Like it's continue to renew your mind. Go back and think again. He's saying think, not group think. That's what we are called to do. Now, when you hear that word renew, Think refresh, reboot, start again, try again. We listen for God's wisdom again. We start over with God's wisdom again. We obey his voice. It's the same as repentance. We turn away from what we were and go, God, I want to embrace your grace fresh again. I want to start again. And we receive that grace and then we blaze new paths into the world led by his Holy Spirit. That is the gift of the renewing of the mind. And the point of this is so that we might test the world around us. Work out whether what we see accurately reflects God's vision for his kingdom here on earth. Now, if it does, we celebrate it and we pursue it. And if it doesn't, we resist it and fight it. I say that because not everything, like just to state the obvious, not everything in the world sucks. Many things are great, okay? Let me give two quick examples. One is good and one is bad. The Black Lives Matter movement Moving to challenge racism and raising the heightened awareness of that is worth celebrating and pursuing. The multi-billion dollar porn industry and the sexualization of absolutely everything and everyone, regardless of their age or stage, is worth resisting and fighting. One is productive, one is destructive. They are both things that are trending positive in the world. One is good, one is evil. How do we find out? We renew our minds and we do so with the mind of Christ by being in the word of God for ourselves. See, for generations, friends, Christians have been dissenters, resistors, 
We stand up to evil when we see it. We refuse to conform to patterns of wickedness. Christians were the ones who broke the slave trade in the British Empire. Christians were at the forefront of breaking racial boundaries in the US. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a pastor, was a preacher. That's why he sounds so good when he says, ah, have a dream, because he's got the resonance. He's got the cadence. He knows how to do it. Christians are at the forefront of ending social evils today whether that be supplying clean water, ending sex trafficking, or eradicating global hunger. They are on the forefront. Am I saying they're the only ones? Of course not. You do not have to be a Christian to do good. But there is something about what Christ has done for us that pushes Christians to the edge of doing good things, of being on the edge of justice at all times, and seeing kingdom come on earth as in heaven. It is literally in the book. There's still much to fight. Much that is evil in the world needs resisting. The writer of the Hebrews puts it this way, chillingly. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. They're talking about Jesus, of course. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. We are not at that point in the West, but as the percentage of Christians declines, Data came back out from uh, the census. We are less than 50% to nobody's surprise. Hostility to people of faith increases, and it is. And the world at large views Christians as no longer holding a moral high ground, but a moral low ground. Then that becomes increasingly more likely. When evil is named good and vice versa, the chances of hostility and persecution increase. I'm not trying to get a victim complex here. I'm just trying to state the state of the world at this moment, the world, the cosmos, the system that is anti-God. At this point, you might be wondering, why on earth would I want to be a Christian? Valid question. There's only one reason that you should really want to be a Christian, because it's true. Jesus named himself the only way, the one truth, and the gate to eternal life. He fulfilled every prophecy throughout history about him. He lived the life that we were meant to and died the death that we deserved. He was physically resurrected from the grave. We live no lies because Jesus, the Son of God, lived no lies. Jesus took death on himself, the cost of our sin, rather than live the lies that the world offered. He had a chance to deny being God. He had a chance to deny being the Messiah and get away with a slap on the wrist. But at some point when he's asked, Are you the son of God? He says, you yourself have said it. Why? He would live no lies. He was himself truth embodied. He defied the Jewish religious culture of harsh, oppressive righteousness. And the Roman imperial cult of excess and orgy and supposed freedom, making himself a slave to the cross. And his resurrection was the final proof that it is better to die for truth than live for lies. Because the truth will ultimately set you free. Free from sin, free from death, free from slavery. The cost of that freedom was Christ's death. And we follow Jesus not because he makes life easy for you. If you're here and you follow Jesus, you might have noticed that is not the case. We follow Jesus because he himself is the author of life. We follow Jesus not because it's convenient, but because it's true. In a culture of lies, Jesus suffered for the truth, and that is his call for us. And so the question, church, is this, are you up for it? Are you up for it? Are you up for standing for social issues? Yes, but on the side of God, not current trends. Are you up for standing for Ukraine, not back then when they told you to put the flag in the Twitter bio or whatever, but now, today, 
when everyone's like, oh, that's right, is there still a war on? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty bad over there. Friends, frankly, we need to ask ourselves daily as we encounter news articles and TikToks and just street gossip from our friends, what is the will of God and what is not? What is the word of God and what is not? What is the lies, not only that we've heard, but that we have internalized and began to believe? Now, some of those are things that everyone has faced time and time again because they come out as insecurities. We begin to internalize lies like, I am not enough. And God's like, that's okay. Jesus is here. In Christ, you are more than enough. There are these lies that we know about, but it's the lies around us that really get us. It's that culture. What's water? Do we know what's happening? We should do this not because we must do the will of God, but because God's will leads us to what is genuinely good and what is perfect. It leads us to the kingdom. Eden, paradise, heaven. God's perfect will leads us towards God's perfect future. We obey God not only because He is God and He is worthy of it, but because His vision for the world is the way it is meant to be. And His vision for the world is not just for His good, but for ours. That same passage in Hebrews, just before it, says, For the joy set before Him, Christ endured the cross, scorning its shame. We were that joy. He did it not just for His own glory, but for our goodness. There's only one other piece of advice, well, not only, but there's one other piece of advice that I think we need to internalize that Jesus gives us. That's not only true, not only transformative, but beautiful. He counters the patterns and ways of this world in his timeless teaching in the Sermon on the Mount by calling Christians to a new vision of the kingdom of God. He says this in verse 13, chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus calls his followers the salt of the earth, the Hebrew word yeah, which means the land, the soil. He challenges them. If you're not bringing out the true flavors of God in the world, well, you're an ineffective Christian. Then he shifts gears slightly and lifts us up. He says, you are the light of the world. Isn't that interesting that he doesn't say, I am the light of the world? He says similar to that in so many occasions. Here he says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the cosmos. You're a beacon of illumination in a world that has darkness pervading it. And he says, a city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and it gives light for all who are in the house. Friends, if you are in Christ, there's no getting away from it. You're gonna be in Christ. If you've got the Holy Spirit inside of you, the Spirit will constantly be beating counter to the ways of the world. Your heart will be pulling you in a way that the world will be pulling you not from. You are born to stand out from the crowd. It is your destiny. Not like an influencer or an angry protester, but like Christ Himself. Holy, concerned for the will of God, the wisdom of God. And the final verse is just perfect. In the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do you see? This isn't just about you or just about me. This dangerous, breathtaking, beautiful life Jesus calls you to that swims against the current of the world, refusing to conform to its patterns is a way of crying out to a culture around you, a culture that day after day is calling out in the silence of their own minds. There has to be something more than this. The Christian response is meant to go to that culture and say, yes, yes, there is something more. Yes, Christ offers something. And not only does He offer it, it's not over there, it's in me. 
It is in me. You are the light of the world. Christ, in His grace and His infinite wisdom, has chosen us, these imperfect vessels, to bear the light of all creation to others. It's extraordinary. You should stand out. You were not designed to conform to the world, but to be an agent of transformation. Not because you are a unique narcissistic butterfly and snowflake, but because the creator of this world has placed on you his image and his will and his purpose and has called you his own. He's made you on purpose, for a purpose, but we cannot do that unless we stand in the truth of Jesus Christ against the narratives of this world that are counter to the wisdom of God. And we cannot know that unless we are in the word of God. I know this sounds hard. It is a bit hard, but you have the Holy Spirit. The presence of God is in you and with you and for you. And just on that, these next six weeks are a time of counterformation. Okay? We've just talked about culture and the way we are formed by culture. What we are getting over these six weeks is counterculture. We are breaking old parts, old ways, old patterns that have been in our minds and saying, what is of the Lord and what is not? And maybe even as I've been talking, God's just been nudging you, prompting you. What is not of me has seeped its way into your life? What is a mindset? What is a pattern? What is a habit? What is a thought? What is a belief that is not of the Lord that has entered your mind? Let me simply say this as we close. Exhale. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you are not a disciple of this world. There are ideas that we need to identify and eliminate in our lives. There are beliefs we cling on to that are not the wisdom of Jesus and against the greatest person to ever live and the smartest person to ever live, Jesus Christ. Don't be conformed to this world. Be the light of it. Your destiny, friends, as we would say here at Encounter Church, is to be a culturally engaged leader, a leader who is courageous and resilient, and who knows the times, but lives for Christ. Despite our own flaws, our own self-deceptions, the lies that we have believed inherently within ourselves, we will know the times and live for Christ. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We would love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to financially support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.